You're listening to Radio Diaries. This is Joe. And I'm excited to tell you about the newest show in the Radiotopia family. It's called The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. I'm sure a lot of you listen to podcasts while cooking. Well, The Recipe is the podcast that will teach you how to be a better cook with tips from two seasoned pros, pun intended. Hosted by Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Walk and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen, The Recipe not only lets you learn new recipes, but also teaches you techniques and secret ingredients that'll up your cooking from just okay to restaurant quality. So welcome them to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb right now, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Radio Diaries is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, and guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Radio From PRX. From PRX's Radiotopia, this is Radio Diaries. I'm Joe Richman. Every day we go about our lives doing thousands of routine, mundane tasks. And sometimes we make mistakes. Human error happens all the time. It just doesn't always happen in a nuclear missile silo. Today on the show, we're bringing you a collaboration with our friends at This American Life. It's a story of what can happen because of one dropped wrench. Back in September 1980, September 18th, Jeff Plum climbed into his pickup and headed toward the nuclear missile silo near a tiny town in Arkansas called Damascus. He was a 19-year-old missile technician, a new trainee, riding with another guy, David Powell, who was showing Plum the ropes. David Powell was certified. He had done it over and over and over. For me, it was uh, fairly new. So, first time I was in training with David. Plum was a city kid from near Detroit. He remembers sitting in the truck that day, watching the farms and fields fly by, until eventually the truck slowed, pulled into a gravel road in the middle of nowhere, passed through some woods, and came to a fence. There wasn't much to see, a concrete slab with a handful of radio antennas sticking up out of the ground. Under that concrete slab, though, was a 146-foot silo, like an inverted 14-story building. To get in was a sequence of gates, phones, secret codes, several super-secure metal and concrete doors. And then at the bottom of the stairs, you could go two directions. Down one hall was the complex's three-story underground command center, with all the communications equipment and computers and staff. A second hallway led to the missile silo. I was in awe when I would walk into the silo. When you open up the silo door and you walk in there and look at this, and it, sometimes the, the lighting in there was just right to where it just loomed in the dark like it was a, a, a bullet in a chamber ready to go. You know, and it had this like dark black warhead on top, pure destruction at, at the fingertips of a couple of men. The missile in the silo that day, the one Jeff Plum is describing, was called the Titan II. At the time, the Titan II was the most powerful nuclear weapon in the American arsenal. One of them, just one, could unleash the same power as all the bombs dropped in World War II, including the atomic bombs, times three, 
all the bombs in World War II times three. But besides being America's most powerful nuclear missiles, the Titan IIs were also some of the oldest. One especially dangerous and aging part of the Titan II missile was its fuel system. By 1980, most nuclear weapons had switched to solid fuel. But when the Titan II was developed in the 1960s, nuclear weapons used liquid fuel. Liquid fuel meant that we took a nuclear warhead and we put it on top of two gigantic tanks and filled those tanks with incredibly volatile liquids. One tank was rocket fuel. The other was something called oxidizer. Greg Devlin also worked on the Titan II missiles. And if they ever meet, typically they're meant to meet inside the motor and then it propels it where it's going. But if they ever meet anywhere before that, you will instantly have an explosion and a fire. So, um, yes, it's a, it's a, it is a bomb sitting on a bomb. But even if you didn't mix these fuels, they were extremely dangerous. The oxidizer on its own was a Class A poison, the most toxic category for any chemical. It could ignite spontaneously if it touched leather, paper, cloth, wood. The fuel could ignite if it touched rust, or even if it didn't touch anything. If there were enough fumes and you waved your hand too fast, it could explode. So between burns, explosions, fire, between inhalation, um, if you got it on your skin, it would turn to acid. And we actually had a, a greater fear of the fuels on board than the warhead itself. The teams that handled this hazardous stuff were called Propellant Transfer Systems Teams, or PTS teams. Surprisingly young guys, 18, 19, 20 years old. They were known for partying hard, speeding, driving motorcycles. Sometimes they would do this thing where they would put missile fuel in a bucket. Then they would take a ping pong ball, fill it with oxidizer, and toss it in the bucket and watch it blow up, like Mad Max beer pong. These were the teams that David Powell was training Jeff Plum to be a part of. Here's Plum. We could do anything. That was our mindset. You're invincible and nothing was going to stop us. You know, at 19, it just, I didn't have any fear of things at that point in my life. So we're in the silo. Jeff Plum and his trainer, David Powell, are ready to get to work on a job that was routine maintenance. One of the missile's fuel tanks was low on pressure, so the job was just to take off something called the dust cap, kind of like a gas cap, but on a nuclear missile. Then they'd have to pump in more liquid, and voila, that was it. Except before they could start, they had a problem with uh, not, not being able to get the hydraulic platform to come down. The hydraulic platform went up and down the side of the missile, like a platform for window washers on a high-rise, and it was broken. It's worth knowing these fuel tech jobs, PTS jobs, had actually gotten to be more and more of a grind around this time because the missiles were aging. Materials were outdated, dilapidated, deformed. Valves leaked, pumps failed. There was a lot of things wrong with the missile silo. So there was more work to do without more people to do it, which meant PTS guys like Powell and Plum were increasingly overworked and burned out, hustling from one missile to another to patch them up, regularly pulling 12- and 14-hour days. And now Plum and Powell had to wait to do this routine maintenance job in the afternoon of a long day. We were very anxious to get this job completed. It was a Friday night. We were young, wanting to get back to hang out with our friends and drink beer, you know. So I remember laying around up in the control center, just hanging out with these guys for hours. Finally, they got word the hydraulic platform was up and running. So boom, 
green light. Plum and Powell suited up in protective gear, picture the guys who kidnap E.T., and they head down the hall towards the missile silo, ready for action. And as we were going down the long cableway, we realized we didn't have the torque wrench. After hours of waiting, Plum and Powell had left this crucial tool, the torque wrench, in their truck all the way up on the surface. It was kind of like forgetting your cell phone in your house, if your house had a bunch of enormous concrete and metal doors and required a secret code to get in. It was a pain in the ass on a long, irritating day. Jeff Plum says personally, he didn't know what to do. He was just learning. And the procedures, they were so meticulously laid out. You had to follow these detailed checklists. You needed the right tools. The checklist was the, uh, the Bible, you might want to say. And Air Force regulations required us to go through that checklist and, and follow everything step by step. So Plum's like, what do we do? And he looked to David Powell. And Powell said, don't worry. For what they were about to do, there was actually another tool. Not the official one, but he'd used it before. So forget the torque wrench. It'll be fine. So we grabbed this, uh, this ratchet, like you would pull out of your toolbox, but uh, quite larger. If you can picture it, was a monstrous thing because it was about three feet long. It had about a three-foot-long handle. And the socket weighed anywhere from five to eight pounds. It was a big socket. So it was a, a large piece of steel. Plum looked at this wrench, like a three-foot Willy Wonka-type wrench, and he wasn't so sure about it. And this giant socket wrench, besides being kind of the wrong tool, a huge, cumbersome wrong tool, it wasn't in the best shape. The two pieces of the wrench were supposed to click together, but they didn't. So we had a problem at that point. And so we improvised. Here's what they did. One guy held a socket over this thing they had to remove, the dust cap. The second guy held the huge handle of the ratchet and turned. Sure enough, the cap screwed right off. It worked. No problem. Great. So Plum hands the socket off to Powell. And I remember saying to him, you, you, you've got this, right? You, you got, you're, all, you're okay? You got this? And, and, and he said, yeah, I got it. Let go of it. And so I remember releasing it. And I remember seeing it kind of just fall. And it hit the platform, the socket did, and it, it bounced and it went between the platform and the missile. Just to make sure you're picturing this, Plum and Powell were working way up in the silo, like window washers on the side of a nuclear missile on a platform. Attached to the platform was this rubber bumper that was supposed to fit right up against the missile so there was no gap for things to fall through. But as the Titan II facilities had aged, the rubber bumper didn't fit quite right. And so there was a small gap, a socket-sized gap. It was like it bounced and, and, and it landed perfectly in the gap. You know, it's almost like, it was like somebody playing tiddlywinks or something. You know how you would, uh, you know, or one of those, uh, them old drinking games where you bounce something and landed in, in, into, the, into the hole perfect. You know, it was just, it bounced and it was, it was, gone. I literally watched it fall. We had dropped tools numerous times. It wasn't the first time that we ever dropped a tool and watched it fall. It was common. It just happened that when this socket fell, it went down 70 feet, 80 feet, whatever it was there, and it bounced off the thrust ring that the missile sat on. Just this big giant round ring 
And when it fell, it picked up maximum speed. It hit the top of that thrust ring and just ricocheted into the side of the, of the, of the missile. I heard it hit. Boom. And the next thing you know, I just seen fuel spraying out. I just looked at it down there. I just looked in awe. I just, I couldn't believe what just happened. The only thing I remember saying to David was, uh, this, this is not good. This is not good. There's a hierarchy of not good. And this kind of not good might be at the top. This kind of not good was deadly, skin-melting, highly explosive rocket fuel spraying out of a 100-foot-tall intercontinental ballistic missile. On top of that missile sat the most powerful nuclear warhead in the United States of America. You know, we, we, we didn't know how to respond. We, we looked at it for, I don't know, at least a minute, trying to, trying to figure out what, what we were going to do about it. And, uh, and then he contacted uh, the team chief, and uh, told them that we had a cloud of uh, vapor uh, emitting from the missile. On the other end of the radio was the missile complex's command center, a three-story underground bunker filled with monitoring equipment, control panels, and a team staffing all of it. On that team was a guy named Alan Childers. Unlike the PTS teams, Childers was an officer, and he didn't just know a few specifics or mechanics of the Titan II. Alan Childers knew the missile inside and out. He'd spent six months studying it, reading a manual called the Dash-1, which laid out every piece of how the massive weapon worked. He and his crew spent most of their time using detailed checklists, going over all the missile systems one by one. Childers was standing behind a control panel when the call from Powell and Plum came in. So the first thing we heard was that there was uh, smoke in the launch duct. And, of course, the commander's going, what do you mean? What's going on? And then I heard him say, what do you mean smoke in the launch? And he was going to say ducked. But I don't think he ever got the word ducked out. As soon as that happened, the light started coming on. And it's a klaxon alarm. And it's just wah, real loud. And all of the lights came on. So you're trained to punch the alarm off once you have, once it gets your attention, which it did. You turn, turn the alarm off. Well, the alarm would, would turn off, but it would immediately come back on again as another light came on, another light came on. And so these indicator lights were uh, oxidizer in the launch duct, fuel vapors in the launch duct, fire in the launch duct. Horns and klaxons were going off, sirens. Pretty much every light on on the instrument panel, they were lit up. Just moments later, Plum and Powell had made their way from the silo back to the command center. When they got there, they found a huge scramble. Everyone besides them trying to figure out what the problem was. They were trying to figure out how to deal with all these problems. They were resetting klaxons, and it was, they didn't know what was going on. It was chaos, because they didn't know. To be clear, faced with the fuel gushing out of the missile, and now the command center firing questions at them, Dave Powell made a choice. It was the kind of choice you make when you're afraid of getting in trouble. He played dumb. He told them there was smoke in the silo but nothing about the hole they had punched in the missile. Jeff Plum made his own version of that decision, which was to keep quiet and follow Powell's lead. That created a crucial knowledge gap in the room. On the other side of that gap, Alan Childers and the rest of the command staff were left to scramble desperately, frantic to figure out what was wrong. All of that mattered because if all the fuel leaked out, it's not like the missile would just sit there empty. The Titan II's fuel tanks were pressurized. 
like a tire. And if enough fuel leaked out, it would go flat. Or in the missile's case, it would collapse under its own weight. Enough oxidizer and fuel to carry a 330,000-pound missile across the ocean would smash together underneath the nuclear warhead. I just, in my own mind, I pictured poking a hole in a pop can. And so all this pressure now is turning to a negative PSI, which internally, I, in my mind, I thought it's going to collapse. This, this, this tank is going to collapse in on itself. It's sucking itself in. I was scared. I was really concerned that this thing could blow up any moment. So my, my, my concern was to get out of there. I didn't know the, uh, the safety of that warhead. There were so many questions. How fast was the fuel leaking? When could the missile collapse? Could the silo contain the explosion? Could an explosion set off the nuclear warhead? Minute by minute by minute, Plum stood silent, unsure what to do. So I, I just, I kind of kept my mouth shut. You know, I didn't answer. David was the one answering the questions. So they never told us what had happened. With Plum and Powell holding out, Alan Childers and the team in the command center was slowly running out of options. We ran all of our, what we called our red tab checklist, our hazard checklist, uh, and it didn't stop anything from happening. All the indicator lights stayed on. Uh, that's when uh, uh, the commander turned back to the team and said, what do you think it is? These indicators don't make any sense. And this was a half hour into it. They said, we don't know. We don't, we don't know what, what's going on out there. All we saw was the uh, smoke in a launch duct. Eventually, a guy from the command center team, Rodney Holder, turned to Plum and Powell. And Rodney asked him again, what happened? What, did you guys, what do you guys know that we don't know? And uh, Airman Powell started crying. And, and that's when the commander went, he said, you need to tell us what, what is going on out there. We cannot figure it out. And that's when, as he was crying, he basically said, I dropped a, a socket off the end of the wrench and it punched a hole in the side of the missile. And uh, the commander just, I, I could still picture his face. He just turned white. And he said, you need to tell the command post what you did because they're going to have questions and I don't want to be relaying it. So he handed him the phone. He brought him over to the console. He said, I'm going to put Airman Powell on. Uh, we have a serious emergency. We just found out what's going on and I want him to talk to you. And he put him on and he told him, I don't know how he got it out uh, because he was crying so much, you know. I just remember everybody standing there watching, just dumbfounded. We're talking about a socket that was bigger than your fist punching a hole in the side of a missile. You couldn't patch it if you wanted to. And by then, so much had drained out, you couldn't even open up the door and lean inside without it eating up your suit. So uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't do anything about it by then. And then uh, the commander got back on the phone, and uh, we were basically told to stand by. Uh, and we stood by. As news of what had happened traveled up the Air Force chain of command, everyone at the missile site was instructed to wait. To wait, of course, mind you, inside a nuclear missile complex teetering on the brink of a massive explosion. Just sit tight. Quite a bit of time went by like that. A couple of hours, actually. 
One of the main questions was whether to keep the missile teams underground, try to somehow, somehow fix the leak. Or is it bound to blow up and you should get everyone out, run like hell and hope the nuclear warhead doesn't go off? Or, maybe a surprising question, is the command center actually the safest place for them? The launch control center, the, the um, control room was, was supposed to survive a nuclear explosion. Eventually, it was a colonel named John Moser, back at the Air Force Base in Little Rock, who made the decision. He knew the command center was designed to survive a nuclear attack, like a direct hit from a Russian nuclear missile. But how could he be sure? Nothing like this had ever happened before. They were off the map. For you, giving the order, was it a clear call, or was it? were you conflicted? Were you unsure? I was not unsure. I was a straight-up clear order to evacuate because I didn't want people to be injured. We had no idea what was going to happen. We've never had an explosion or a potential explosion like this. It's never happened before. And uh, I gave the order to evacuate. And I tried to talk him out of that. Alan Childers, back in the underground command center, disagreed with Moser's decision. He argued. I didn't think it'd blow up. Uh, And if it did blow up, I thought that the door and the complex would contain the explosion. It was underground, had this cap on it. I had uh, two blast doors protecting me that were the size of bank vault doors. And I was sitting in a facility that was designed to survive a detonation from a Russian nuclear weapon. So I thought, we're safer down here than if we go up above. I guess I would think, you know, most people would be happy to get an order to say, get out of there. I felt devastated. Yeah, I was devastated that I had to leave. Uh, I, even to this day, it bothers me that I had to leave. Never in the history of an active missile complex had you left the missile with a warhead on it, walked away from the site, with the site still running. On principle, I didn't like it. The logic of it made no sense to me. I could not believe that we were leaving that complex. As, as in desperate shape as that site was, to leave that and not be able to tell people what was occurring out there in that launch uh, duct, uh, even if we couldn't do anything, I felt like there was probably somebody was going to come up with something that we could do, and we would not be there to do it. Alan Chowders made his case. He knew the Titan II missile inside and out. He knew the dangers, what could happen. He was staring at the United States on the brink of maybe setting off its most powerful nuclear missile right in the heart of the country. He clung to any hope to do something, anything, to claw the situation back. But Childers wasn't in charge. And eventually orders came down, and Alan Childers and everyone else in the Damascus Missile Complex evacuated. With the benefit of hindsight, we can say that from this point forward, at every point in the story, when the Air Force made a decision, it arguably made the wrong decision. Here, the Air Force ordered them to abandon post. The order was to evacuate through the complex's escape hatch, which had never been used before. It was a narrow tunnel that led to a ladder, which took them several stories back up to the surface. Greg Devlin was above ground with a bunch of backup teams from the Little Rock Air Force Base. It was really 
it was just really eerie that night. You know, you saw smoke coming out of the uh, the vents over here. You you could get whiffs of fuel hydrazine, which is, has like a fish type of an odor to it. So you 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 could smell that. So it was a very hazy, eerie looking scenario. And then, with everyone on the surface, it seems the Air Force realized what Alan Childers had been arguing all along. That the best shot at defusing this crisis, the only way to know what was up in the silo, was to have people inside. So, you guessed it, they ordered two people to go back in. Again here, the Air Force zigged when it should have zagged. The order was not to go in the open escape hatch, which everyone had just come out of. Instead, they told the folks on site they should break in through the front doors of the missile complex. With precious time ticking away, don't go through the back door, which is sitting wide open. No, break through the front door of one of the U.S. military's most secure facilities. Or front doors is more like it. Huge, concrete, and secure metal doors, using only these tools. A crowbar, a hammer, a long screwdriver, a bolt cutter, and a hydraulic hand pump. It's worth also mentioning, had Alan Childers stayed in the command center like he wanted to, he could have opened all those doors with a push of a button. People on the site were frustrated and confused, but they followed orders and started burrowing back into the missile complex. Uh, the first two guys to go in were myself and uh, Rex Huckel. We suited up. Devlin and his partner strapped on oxygen tanks to wade through clouds of lethal rocket fuel. They broke through several doors, and then after 30 minutes, a second two-person team went in to relieve them. And not just any team. One of this duo was David Livingston. Livingston was a member of the PTS team. He was also David Powell's roommate, Powell who dropped the socket that started the whole thing. Livingston was actually Powell's best friend. They made it all the way to the blast lock door where there was a meter, a meter that took readings of fuel present in the air in the silo. And at 18,000 parts per million, it's explosion ready. It's ready to explode. At eight, that's red line, that's pegged out. So when he called back and said, this thing's about to blow, and the command center said, come back now. So him and Dave Livingston traversed back up the flights of step. They got just above ground, and within 30 seconds, an explosion happened. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning, and... Uh... I was standing up, um, listening to a conversation, and all of a sudden I lost communications. This is Colonel John Moser again, who was 50 miles away at the Little Rock Air Force Base calling the shots. The moment of the explosion, he was talking to people on the site, and the line went dead. Uh, all you've ever read is when you have a nuclear explosion, you lose communications for some time, and we lost the communications and I just had no idea if, a, if, if the blast wave was gonna eventually hit Little Rock Air Force Base, I had no idea. I, did, I had no idea what was gonna happen. So I thought we lost the whole works out there, everybody. And, um, you know, I'm not a really religious guy, but I had to, I almost dropped on my knees to say a quick prayer. While John Moser was at the Little Rock Air Force Base, waiting for everything around him to be swept off the earth by a nuclear explosion, Alan Childers was back at the Damascus missile site. It's so hard to describe an explosion like that. 
the only thing you see is this huge, un, I mean, nighttime turned into day. It was unbelievable because it was so bright all of a sudden. And I literally turned to one of the guys and I was, I was feeling my chest and I said, it couldn't be a nuclear explosion because we're still here. And that's, that's what dawned on me. We were still there. Man, oh my gosh. I was standing at the fence and I was facing the silo when it exploded. Again, Greg Devlin, one of the guys on the first team to go back in and who was watching as the second team worked. It was just a bang, a loud sound and the concussion of wind. It was just, it's like, bang! It was like being in front of a, uh, picture yourself as nothing's there, but you just got hit by a Mack truck. And all of a sudden, rocks started falling. It was like rain falling. And it was all this gravel from the complex. And metal started falling out of the sky. And everybody started to run. The, the chunks of concrete that were landing everywhere were as, I mean everywhere, were as big as coffee tables. The real big ones were as big as pickup trucks and school buses and, and stuff like that. These were everywhere. You could hear them hitting the ground around me, man. It was like, boom, boom, boom. I got up immediately. I took off running. I got five steps away and a chunk of concrete hit the ground behind me as big as a, uh, bigger than school bus. The trees were on fire, the grass was on fire. The, air, the only light we had was fires. And you could see the shadows of just about everything because there was so much fire around there. It was like being in this forest fire without a forest being around you. And then for just a, a second or two, it was this one point in time where there was no sound at all. It, it was like a total calm peace, kind of like the end of the world, for 10 seconds. And, and then you heard all the screaming and crying and guys yelling, oh my God, I'm hurt, oh, you know. This is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. Modern age terror swept an area of rural Arkansas today when fuel exploded around a nuclear warhead in a missile silo. The incident began when officials say a workman dropped a wrench. The morning after, everyone was trying to sort out what had happened. The press, Air Force, local law enforcement, the public. Simply put, the fuel exploded. The nuke didn't go off. The Air Force was keeping tight-lipped, refusing to confirm whether there had even been a nuclear warhead on site. For the survivors, the injuries were extensive. Greg Devlin had burns on his face, neck, and back. His skin was burned off his left hand. Others had extensive burns and broken bones. One airman, David Livingston, was dead. Remember, Livingston was David Powell's roommate and best friend. Livingston was on the second team to go back in, and he was standing just outside the silo when it blew. All that meant Powell had kind of dropped the socket into some huge Rube Goldberg machine of bad luck, and indirectly killed his best friend. At the missile site, the damage was staggering, a monument to just how dangerous the situation had been. The missile silo's door, a 1.5 million pound slab of concrete and steel, had blown off, spun like a frisbee, and landed more than 500 feet away. And then there was the biggest question. Where was the nuclear warhead? The warhead ended up about a quarter mile away, intact, 
in a ditch. To me, that's amazing. As for the question of whether the nuclear warhead could have gone off, the military would later say, no, impossible. There were too many safety measures in place. But lots of people who are familiar with nuclear weapons, who know them well, who worked on the Titan II, they say it absolutely could have. If the warhead had gone off, it's estimated the fallout could have reached more than 400 miles and killed people in Arkansas, Missouri, Kentucky, Illinois, and Indiana. After Damascus, the Air Force officially blamed the incident on human error. So Jeff Plum and David Powell, who dropped the socket. That never sat well with many of the people who were there, who worked at Damascus, including Jeff Plum. It wasn't uncommon for that to happen. Every guy that worked in those silos, I know, dropped a wrench or a tool at some point in his career. Every guy. And if, he, if they tell you they didn't, they're lying. Because... Uh, there's, 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 there was no way to get around that. It just happened that was, that one w- went the wrong way. Plum says the Air Force knew that. They knew then, and they know now, that even when the stakes are nuclear weapons, human error is a factor. After Damascus, workers were required to tie tools to their bodies. One solution to the problem of human error? The lanyard. We should say we asked David Powell to talk about all of this, but he didn't want to talk about it. We did learn that he only recently told his wife and family. He'd kept it secret for years and years. Jeff Plum says he thinks Powell really struggled with it. Just like he did, too. After the incident, Jeff Plum had an episode where he snapped, lost it, and started throwing beer bottles against the wall in a room at the Air Force base. It was bad. The Air Force demoted him, and things went downhill from there. He was eventually discharged from the Air Force. Even now, years later... He finds the accident hard to talk about. I'll tell the story, and you know, I'll begin to tell the story to someone, and and then you just get caught up in it. You tell that story over, I've told it, I don't know how many times, you know, and uh, relived it a few times, you know, and I, and I think I, I really have, I think I've had enough, you know. Yeah, just thinking back on it, you know. It just it wasn't a it wasn't a, a very good time in my life at that point, so I think I, I really don't want to tell the story anymore. So, um, yeah, this will be the last time. Yeah, this will be the last time. One of the remarkable things about Damascus is actually how unremarkable it was. How many accidents there have been like this one? When it comes to nuclear weapons, it's so easy to assume that everything is all taken care of. Oversight is airtight, precautions and protocols are in place, the stakes are so serious. But the 70-year history of our nuclear weapons is littered with accidents like what happened in Arkansas. Military records show two kinds of mishaps with nuclear weapons, bent spears and broken arrows. Broken's more serious. The explosion at Damascus was a broken arrow. And there have been dozens of other broken arrow incidents. Dozens. Consider these. 1958, there was one where a nuclear bomb was accidentally dropped out of a B-47 flying over South Carolina. It fell 15,000 feet before landing on the property of a guy named Walter Gregg. No one died, the warhead wasn't armed, but the conventional explosive went off, destroying Gregg's home and leaving a 50-foot hole in the ground. 1961, a B-52 over North Carolina accidentally dropped two thermonuclear bombs. 
each one 250 times as powerful as the bomb dropped in Hiroshima. And they just fell out over North Carolina. According to the Pentagon, on one of those bombs, five of the six safety switches failed, meaning just one switch prevented this bomb, 250 times as powerful as the Hiroshima bomb, from blowing up part of North Carolina. Altogether, the Pentagon has declassified information about 32 Broken Arrow incidents, though those records only go up to 1980. So the last official Broken Arrow that we know about is the missile that exploded in Damascus, Arkansas, when Jeff Plum and Dave Powell dropped a tool. Everything after that is classified. We still have 4,000-some nuclear weapons all around the world. An accident like Damascus could never happen again, because our missiles no longer use liquid fuels. So that risk is gone. But there are other risks. There are new ones. Enemies hacking into missile systems over the internet, low morale and other personnel issues among the people who maintain and operate our nuclear arsenal, and aging facilities and technology. I talked to half a dozen experts who are familiar with our nuclear weapons, from places like Yale, Berkeley, Harvard, and former military officials. They worry about mishaps and accidents that most of us never consider, with weapons most of us never think about. All of them pointed out the accident at Damascus. No one saw that coming. There were supposed to be safeguards to prevent that from ever happening. One military expert said, the kind of accident we should worry about is the kind that seems impossible. Like what happened in Damascus. Again, Greg Devlin. One drop socket that A should have, let's just say, not dropped. The B should have never got past the platform. C uh, shouldn't have hit the thrust mount. D shouldn't have hit the missile. Uh, If it hit, it shouldn't have punctured a hole in it. I mean, there are so many things that shouldn't have happened. But one drop socket wiped out an entire nuclear missile system. One drop socket, nine-pound socket, took it all out. There's no one that thought that scenario out. A single dropped tool setting off the explosion of a nuclear missile. Greg Devlin says he would have put the chance of that at zero. A special thanks on this story to Eric Schlosser, who wrote a book on our nuclear arms called Command and Control, and his research was crucial to this story. He pointed out to us that while the U.S. no longer uses liquid-fueled nuclear weapons like the Titan II, they are still in use. One place where you'll find them right now, North Korea. Also thanks to Eric Malinsky, who helped report this story, to Ben Calhoun, Ira Glass, and all the other folks of This American Life where this piece just aired. And to our Radio Diaries team, Sarah Kate Kramer, Nellie Gillis, Ben Shapiro, and Deborah George. Radio Diaries is part of Radiotopia from PRX. We have support from the National Endowment for Humanities and listeners like you. I'm Joe Richman. Thanks for listening. Radiotopia. From P.